Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book. All right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode 46, The Tragedy of Macbeth, by William Shakespeare. What is that noise? It is the cry of women, my good lord. I've almost forgot the taste of fears. The time has been my senses would have cooled to hear a night shriek. And my fell of hair would at a dismal treatise rouse and stir as life were in. I have supped full with horrors. Direness, familiar to my slaughterous thoughts, cannot once start me. Wherefore was that cry? The queen, my lord, is dead. She should have died hereafter. There would have been a time for such a word. Tomorrow. And tomorrow. And tomorrow. Creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow. Poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing.
and welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we take a thorough look at one piece of literature we have both read and determine whether it is worthy of its reputation, whether it is required reading. Okay. That laugh, I think it's a new record. I think you... You laughed like I don't even think I got through the entire intro. So congratulations! Because <laughs> track of these things, you know. You had these weird pauses. I was like, well, is he trying to be overly dramatic for some reason on episode forty-six? No, I wish I could do a good NPR voice. Um, you know, like I yeah. like like this is NPR. Or, or, yeah, know, sort of Ira Glass like. Talking today about something, you know, that seems very important and, you know, just kind of trailing <laughs> off. Um, yeah. I, can't, I can't do it. I can't do it very well. Um, anyway, the, the person who's laughing behind me is the, uh, let's see, the Malcolm to my mm. McDuff. Mm. Neither of us is villainous, at least in that, at least uh, in the, in the, um, in the Macbeth or Lady Macbeth way. And I didn't feel like either of us needed to be bankwoed out of here so yeah thank one fleance i'm tom panneries and that is stella how are you it is i yes yeah if it were my show i would say take a drink because i laughed before the first five minutes but it's not so i can do what i want on this show <laughs> including stepping on my lines um oh dear oh uh, yeah i know <laughs> that was that pro- too far uh Nah, not far enough. It's been we're practically at four year anniversary, I suppose. We're really, really with this, close, yeah. 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 So I think by by now we understand each other. We're about two episodes away, right? Yeah. This is yeah, 46, I mean forty. So forty eight. Assuming that we've done one each month, yeah, then yeah. Thereabouts, yeah. Yep. So I well, I always thought it would last. So we we definitely have we have more ideas for books than we probably have time to podcast about. So it's not like we'll ever run out of. It's not like we'll ever run out of ideas. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and even our specials, you know, Mm -hmm. just came up with a couple new ones. So I I think, yeah, it's just, I think we have the ideas. Sometimes it comes down to time just because, you know, our jobs and things like that. But even when I went to Africa, we still made time for it. We planned ahead and did it. So it's, uh, it's great. Yeah, I love... Number one, we both love reading. We compete. We compete with Goodreads, and then number two, it's just fun to discuss you and I these topics because we just have fun talking about comic books or you know alien franchise and yes. books. So yes. I'm not surprised that it has gone on as long as it had. This is weird. Like we're talking, you know, episode 100, and I think, in my opinion, I feel like our friendship has strengthened as well because we consistently talk to each other and we hold each other accountable to episodes and we trust each other so i am so appreciative that we've been doing this and and yeah i love doing it with you yeah no i do look forward to this even though if both of us are just like crazy harried because of whatever (laughs) we're doing it is nice to to sit down and do this and now a peek behind the curtain this was deliberately chosen because i knew it would be easy for me to read because i knew (laughs) i was coming into uh, the work week at school Mm. Um, and, uh, so I'll give a little bit of history of, of Nick Beth and how it works with me anyway. And that, you know, now I was assigned this in high school. We read it in junior year. I remember enjoying it at the time, but 
Um, don't remember. Didn't remember much of it aside from Lady Macbeth and a couple of the more famous uh, soliloquies. Um, didn't really read much tragedy in Shakespeare in college. Um, I do remember reading Lear, and I remember reading Antony and Cleopatra, seeing a performance of Julius Caesar put on by the what it was then known as the Shenandoah Shakespeare Express, but is now the American Shakespeare Company out in Stanton. And mm-hmm. I saw Antony and Cleopatra at the Folger in D.C. <gasps> but I studied mostly comedy because I took an entire course in Shakespearean comedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't roll around to this until my third or fourth, my fourth year of teaching where I was teaching seniors for the first time. And this was the senior level of Shakespeare and um, taught it for a couple of years, didn't teach seniors for a while. And then three years ago, started teaching AP Lit. This was the work. And... So I've been teaching this for the last three years, so I know it very well. And I have um, actually owned two audio versions of it. Um, Mm. One, which I shared with you in case you wanted to listen to, was by the Old Vic Theater. So it was an older production, a British production, um, that a, a colleague gave to me after I had already purchased and listened to the Folger Library version, which is also pretty good, too, so... So I, this was a sort of a punt because I knew I was going to have to look at it again at some point this semester anyway. So I was like, well, let's let, let's do something that's that's some low hanging fruit here. Uh, what is your history with the Scottish play? Yeah, I was thinking about that before we started, and I thought this was going to be the first book that we've done that. I had read in high school, but it wasn't actually that was our first first episode, which was of Mice and Men, because I had done that in high school. So I read Macbeth senior year in college English, which was a dual dual class. Is that how it dual enrollment phrase? Yeah, dual enrollment where you get the community college credit along with the correct. Yeah, yeah, it's called dual enrollment. So that was the Shakespeare because every year we did a Shakespeare where I went to public high school. And so Macbeth was senior year. And I remember well, – I feel like I've either watched the most adaptations of this play or it's tied with Hamlet because when I read Hamlet a couple of years ago, a colleague – my English teacher partner – that teaches eighth grade English lent me a bunch of adaptations mm. and I watched all of those. So I, I've watched the Orson Welles version. The, um, the Roman Polanski one is the one I watched in high school. Mm. I remember watching that with my mom. Cause I think the witches were naked right. and, <laughs> and I've watched throne of blood. Is that what it's called? Yes. That was probably the, the most recent adaptation. Yeah. Yes, that's the most recent one, which I really liked, and it was so different, which was great. And then I have seen the Macbeth version with Michael Fassbender and Marianne Cotillard. And so all of the ones I've seen are winners. I think I'd like to see the one with John, uh, Patrick Stewart. Mm-hmm. I think that would be interesting to see. But this, I mean, this is spoiling, I guess, for a later question, but this is up there. This is either my favorite or like tied with my favorite because Julius Caesar just because of my mm-hmm. intimate connection with it, but I really love Macbeth. I think I think we're actually up there with you in terms of number of adaptations I've seen because I do know for a fact that we have um, I've seen the I've seen the Fastbender, I've seen Throne of Blood, I've seen the Polanski version, I've never seen the Orson Welles version. 
But I have seen two or three stage productions of Twelfth Night in addition to She's the Man. So I think that's a tie. <laughs> oh, that. yeah. man. And I love that movie. Technically, Romeo and Juliet would also be tied because I have seen the um, Zeffirelli film. Because the Zeffirelli version of Romeo and Juliet was like a rite of passage for the American teenager back when I was in high school. But I've seen mm-hmm. the uh, Baz Luhrmann, um, you know, with DiCaprio and, and Claire Danes. Sure. But I, that's a classic. Yeah, but I have also seen um, the West Side Story, which, okay. is, a, which yeah. is an adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. So um, now this isn't the Romeo and Juliet podcast, no, but do you do you like okay? But do you like the Baz Luhrmann one with Leo and uh, and Claire? I, you know, the funny thing is, is I don't like love it. I like it mm-hmm. for what it is because it is very it, it is like an extended music video from the mid nineties. It's like so of its time that I can appreciate it. Um, sure. The best part about that entire movie is Harold per- Perino, um, who was on uh, Lost, who plays Mercutio. He is so mm. and, and John Leguizamo as Tybalt. Those two are so brilliant in that movie. DiCaprio is a good Romeo. Claire Danes is a good Juliet, so I have nothing against either of them. I like the casting of like the fathers and all, all everybody else, but man, Mercutio and Tybalt in that movie, like I could watch an extended scene of the two of them because they're they're so so good. But yeah, it's all right. So you heard okay. So there are positive aspects to Romeo and Juliet. There are. Mercutio is like half that play to me. I just I find him good. Um, there are things about the way structure Shakespeare structures that play as like it literally is two plays in one because it restarts itself after the balcony scene to be it goes mm. from it's almost like a comedy through its first half and then a tragedy through its second if you kind of look at how everything sets up in in at least you know um, kind of goes one way in, in one direction, but. Um, but it, it is not my favorite. This, on the other hand, uh, well, well, we'll get to it. So, um, yeah. So I will. I'm going to get to. I'm actually going to get to it now because I'm going to get to some <laughs> real life history, et cetera, et cetera. Oh. And um, like we did with Shakespeare, this is the. F- I believe, and I think we talked about this last time. I believe this is one of, if not the first author that we've repeated on this podcast Mm -hmm. um, 46 episodes and it took us to them to repeat a Shakespeare play um, or or just a play and 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 when it's Shakespeare Shakespeare. so um, you're gonna gonna get we're gonna get a few um, a few of his plays I'm, I'm sure but like we did with him when we covered Julius Caesar, we're not gonna give a full bio of William Shakespeare um, I'm gonna focus on the history of the play I will add what relevant details of his life that I can find um, or that I could find, but so so we're mostly going to focus on when the play was produced and the history behind it. So the play is classified as a tragedy. Um, so Shakespeare's plays mainly have three categories. If you're talking about them, you have comedies, tragedies, you have histories. Histories being stuff like Richard the Third, etc. But this is a tragedy. It does, however, have its basis in history, much like uh, Julius Caesar did. There was a king named Macbeth, and he did rule Scotland for 17 years, beginning in 1040 and ending in 1057. This real Macbeth succeeded a king named Duncan, but it was not through assassination. It was after a battle. At the time, Macbeth was an autonomous lord of Moray, and Duncan had launched an attack on Macbeth's territory. Duncan was killed in that battle, and Macbeth uh, took over as the king of Scotland by rule of succession. 
His 17-year rule is also known for being mostly peaceful, and he lost his life at the Battle of Campanen in 1057, where he was fighting forces from England. Shakespeare's main source for the play, however, was Raphael Hollinshed's Chronicles of England, Scotland, and Ireland. This is an, an inaccurate, quote, historical text, which details how Macbeth and Banquo conspired to and carried out the murder of Duncan, similar to the play, except, as you'll see in the plot summary, Banquo is not a co-conspirator. Um, so he, Shakespeare trimmed that from, the, <laughs> from that. Mm. Uh, but he does pay a steep price at the hands of Macbeth's growing paranoia. The play itself was written in the early 1600s. Some scholars place early drafts in the late 1500s before the death of Queen Elizabeth in 1603. However, there is much to suggest that the version that we are reading and most people do read was completed and perhaps performed for the first time in 1606. Uh, the clue to this is in the comic relief scene involving the porter because he makes a reference to Henry Garnet who was Guy Fawkes' co-conspirator, and the Guy Fawkes uh, gunpowder plot was 1605, if I'm getting my dates correct. The timing of this play is also important because it more or less coincides with the ascension of James I to the throne following Queen Elizabeth's death. James was the King of Scotland prior to 1603, and by this time Shakespeare and his theatre company, the Lord Chamberlain's Men, were already pretty successful. After James I came to power, the company changed its name to the King's Men, and the number of favorable references to the King of England in this play does suggest that he was showing gratitude, or maybe buttering him up, uh, for the King's patronage. Now, my co sorry, my wife's copy of the Norton Shakespeare. <gasps> to give credit, we were in fact we were going through our books the other day and just kind of culling, you know, ones that we were gonna we we're gonna give away once the library opens up again. And uh, she, we have like one of mine and a and, and a bunch of her Norton anthologies, you know, American lit, British lit, mm -hmm. and the Norton Shakespeare. And she's like, "No, I earned those." I'm like, "Yeah, we're not giving away the Nortons." Um, <laughs> I yeah. earned. Oh those. yeah, we, we both. Does that mean she passed the course for yeah, flying yeah. colors? Because okay. the survey of English courses can be a bear. Oi, yeah, it's like 500 pages yeah, a week. Yeah, it's a lot. So, because I had yeah. to take one as a as an English minor, um, I took one. It was English lit from like uh, the late seven, the, like seventeen something, the late seventeen hundreds, all the way to the twentieth century. So it was almost like a eighteen. It was almost like a nineteenth century lit survey. Now you know. Mm -hmm. Now you know why I abhor nineteenth century English literature. Um, <laughs> Anyway, so there's a textual note here about the actual text, like what is the authoritative text of Macbeth? Um, because, you know, you mm. have the first folio and all these things, and even I don't understand Shakespearean history the way that some of my colleagues and some of my friends do, to be completely honest. But I will say, um, there, just to paraphrase what they say, they say there are, however, signs that uh, this um, that the, the source that we're reading from... Um, is an abbreviated version of the play as first written and performed. Uh, it's considerably shorter than that of any of the other major tragedies. It is a quicker play if you if 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 anybody really wants to time it out. I mean, granted, Hamlet's what a day and a half long, but um, but I know that like Caesar's a little bit longer than this, etc. But the the folio, the first folios, Macbeth's appear to be a version of the play revised sometimes at sometime after Shakespeare had ceased to be active with the King's Men. Um, 
for court performance in the presence of King James. Uh, scholars have long suspect, suspected that it does contain material not by Shakespeare, specifically a few of the songs that are sung um, by the witches, etc. Um, songs with the same opening phrases as, you know, come away, come away, for instance, appear mm. in a manuscript of the playwright Thomas Middleton. Uh, <gasps> no. Is he related? I don't know. Um, we'll have to ask. <laughs> and if, you know. Um, anyway, so, but it, but the, they, those phrases do appear in, in some of his uh, manuscript of some of his unsuccessful play, The Witch, circa 1613. And then he may have been personally responsible for the revision of Macbeth, reflected in the folio text. Uh, Middleton could have added the songs as well as added all of Act 3, Scene 5, because uh, which seems to diverge stylistically from the rest of the play. And I want to say that's the scene with Hecate in the... Yeah, that's the Act 3, Scene 5, is the scene where Hecate basically comes to chastise the witches for what they've done, um, mm. as well as parts um, of Act 4, Scene 1, particularly Hecate's speeches. So just that was just a little bit of a note on the text, and that what we read as Macbeth may have been edited and stuff. But don't forget, these are... Much like the, you know, I compare it to like a, the original screenplay and the uh, shooting script and the final draft of a movie, like where things are changed in post and edited and, and stuff like that. You know, what a screenwriter puts down isn't necessarily what ends up on the screen. And I can imagine that things, as far as Shakespeare is concerned, were workshopped over and over and over again. So it's, it's mm. not out of the realm of things. Yeah. I don't buy into all the weird conspiracy Christopher Marlowe stuff. You know, or it's, oh. I, I, I'm, or yeah. maybe I'm just not enough of a nerd to really care about it, or that type of nerd because I am a nerd. Anyway, <laughs> um, let's talk about the history of the play a little bit more. Let's talk about the Scottish play. In other words, it is <laughs> it has a reputation for being cursed. Uh, here are mm. some details about legends and superstitions surrounding the Scottish play, courtesy of History.com. So according to folklore, the play's history of bad luck began with its first performance circa 1606, when the actor scheduled to play Lady Macbeth died suddenly and Shakespeare was forced to replace him. Remember, back in Shakespeare's time, women were not allowed to perform on stage. So they all the female roles were played by, by men or boys. <gasps> Uh, in another 17th century production held in Amsterdam, the actor playing King Duncan was allegedly killed in front of a live audience when a real dagger was used in place of the stage prop during the stabbing scene. What yeah. the? Sounds like yeah. Game of Thrones. Likewise, well, there were no Starbucks cups in the scene there, but... Oh, look at you throw down. You're getting quick in your... Uh... In, in our old our podcast yeah. old age first the rats of nim and now this okay. sir um <laughs> likewise actor harold norman who reportedly did not believe in superstition died after his stage battle became a little too realistic while playing Macbeth in 1947 productions of the play have also been the center of raucous audience riots including one in 1770 in 1721 at London's Infields Theatre and another in 1772 at Covent Garden. In 1849, a long-standing rivalry between fans of British actor William Charles McCready and American Edward Edwin Forrest turned violent during a production at New Year's Astor 
at, sorry, at New York's Astor Place Opera House, leaving 22 dead and more than 100 injured. Some believe Shakespeare brought the curse upon his own play by using authentic spells in the Three Witches dialogue, which others believe that a production that has been staged for more than 400 years is bound to have its fair share of accidents. Probably the latter and not the former, although the idea that Shakespeare cursed his own play accidentally is kind of funny. Either way, most thespians don't want to take any chances. So what's the antidote for accidentally uttering the forbidden word? Simple. Exit the theater, spin around three times, spit over your left shoulder, and either recite a line from Shakespeare or unleash a profanity. Before I get into the plot, let's talk a little bit about adaptations. Of course, um, this is a stage production, so Macbeth has been played on stage by a number of famous actors, including Laurence Olivier, Ian McKellen. Judy Dench has also played Lady Macbeth at one point or another. In mm. film, there is the what you already mentioned, the 1948 production starring Orson Welles in the title world, which I've actually never uh, seen. In 1957, Eric Hira directed Throne of Blood, with the Macbeth character being played by Toshira Mifume. And I've seen that as well, and it is so good. If, if you mm -hmm, can, mm -hmm. And if you have HBO Max... I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it is available for streaming because I think it's in my I think it's in my watch list just because I just want to watch it again. So there there are a bunch of Kurosawa films, um, and it is it is he, that and Ran, which is um, King Lear, are, are outstanding Shakespeare adaptations. 1971, uh, Roman Polanski, uh, as um, as noted before, I've actually seen this as well. This is the, actually just a bit of trivia. This is the first film that he made after his wife, Sharon Tate, was murdered by the Manson family. Mm. A little bit of an offbeat one, 2001, Scotland, PA. This stars James LaGrosse, Maura Tierney, and Christopher Walken. It is one of a number of adaptations that change the time and place of the setting. I believe the setting is like a diner or a restaurant or something. I have not seen mm. it. And also, as mentioned, uh, Macbeth in 2015, directed by Justin Kurzel with Michael Fassbender in the title role and Marion Cotillard in the role mm. of Lady Macbeth. Um, that's the one I actually show uh, in, in AP Lit because it's a... Oh. I wanted... What do you do with the scorpion? Um, the scorpion yeah. monologue. Yeah, we... Do you fast forward through that? No, no, we... Or do you let it go? I just show the whole thing. Okay. I just think it's a really, really good interpretation, whereas the Polanski one is a little more straightforward. Um, gotcha. I would show Throne of Blood, but <laughs> and I may, I think I show like a clip or two from it, but but the, but I don't know if it would if it would hold their interest. So, or, I guess you don't have. Do you not have as many like issues with pushback of like sexual material being shown? Um. Do you have to get permission slips signed for your students to watch that? Macbeth. No, no, not for Macbeth. Interesting. Uh, I mean, nobody said okay. anything to me, but I'd have it's yeah. We're like two different yeah, worlds. I'd so. have to send a permission slip home. I would then have to say I'm going to cut. I'm going to fast forward through this particular scene. So that's yeah. I mean that's good. So. Uh, yeah, scenes from the play have also been rendered in paintings. Famous lines have been referenced in works of literature over the years. And one of the well, most well-known references is the title of William Faulkner's novel, The Sound and the Fury, because that is a reference to the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow soliloquy in Act 5, which is one of the most famous soliloquies in all of Shakespeare. 
So, let's get into the plot, what this play actually is about. We know it's in Scotland, we know there is murder, we know that the main character is Macbeth. So Macbeth takes place in medieval Scotland a few hundred years and several generations prior to the reign of King England's then-current King James I and concerns the rise to power, reign, and eventual downfall of the eponymous king. As we open, Macbeth is actually a faithful soldier in the army of King Duncan, and he has just played a key role in putting down the, an insurrection by the treasonous Macdonwald, who is the Thane of Corder, a title which Macbeth will inherit. But he doesn't know this when we first meet him and before we even meet Macbeth. We also see three strange women who are witches. They are casting spells that will disrupt the order of things in Scotland and set our protagonist along his path. They meet Macbeth and his best friend Banquo after the battle. And after addressing Banquo by his proper title, the Thane of Gloms, they refer to him as the Thane of Quarter and who sh whom shall be king thereafter. Banquo, they say, will not be a king of Scotland, but his heirs will be a long line of kings. The witches then disappear, and the two are approached by Ross, who tells them that... We were on the break! <laughs> They're approached by Ross, who tells them that Macbeth has given, been given the title of Thane of Cordor. This sets Macbeth's wheels spinning, and he writes to his wife, who knows that her husband is too moral to do what he needs to do which is, of course, murder Duncan in order to inherit the, inherit the throne. Macbeth eventually returns to his castle at Inverness with Duncan, who is going to stay the night. Lady Macbeth tells Macbeth that they will play perfect hosts for that evening. They will get Duncan's guards nice and drunk. They will murder Duncan and plant the murder weapons on the guards. Macbeth has doubts, and his wife calls his manhood into question, and that does the trick. That night, Macbeth sneaks into Duncan's bedroom and stabs him to death. He returns to his room with the knives, which immediately angers his wife because, well, he had one job. And in the spirit of, do I have to do everything, she takes the knives and plants them on the guards. And they literally get away with murder. The guards are executed because Macbeth kills them in anger over Duncan's murder, or at least that's what he tells everybody. And when the king's sons, Malcolm and Donalbane, flee to England and Ireland, the two of them become prime suspects. You know, why would you flee your father's murder site if you had nothing to hide? Macbeth, therefore, is crowned king, though it does not come without suspicion from Banquo, as well as another Scottish nobleman named Macduff. Macbeth, despite having the power he wanted, grows paranoid. He holds a banquet, invites Banquo, and then pays assassins to attack Banquo while he's on the road. They are successful in murdering Banquo, but his son, Fleance, gets away. Of course, this is very important because Banquo's heirs are to become king, and that means that the witch's prophecy still stands. While at the banquet, Macbeth sees Banquo's ghost sitting in his chair at the table, and he rages in horror. Nobody else sees the ghost, of course, and Lady Macbeth does her best to calm everybody down, saying that her husband isn't feeling well. He returns to the witches, who at this point have been reprimanded by their boss, Hecate, for the way they have meddled in the affairs of the world. Truly, there have been very weird things going on. The weather has been strange, animals and other elements of nature have been acting completely out of character very weirdly. So the witches offer three prophecies to Macbeth's, and they are actually all about Macbeth's downfall. 
The first is beware Macduff. The second is that no woman born of man shall harm Macbeth. And the third is that he shall not fall until Burnham Wood comes to Dunsinane Hill. He then asks about Banquo's heirs and sees apparitions of several men who look like Banquo, the last of whom holds a mirror that shows even more of the same. In other words, Banquo's heirs will definitely be a long line of kings. Macbeth then learns that Macduff has fled to England and orders an attack on Macduff's castle, during which his wife and children are murdered. Meanwhile, Lady Macbeth has gone mad with guilt over what has been happening, not just her role in her husband's rights to power, but the tyrannical actions that he has taken since he has become king. We see her sleepwalking and confessing all of her crimes while repeatedly washing her imaginary blood off of her hands. Word reaches Macduff in England that his family has been killed. He vows revenge, although he is, was already willing to fight for Scotland. In fact, at the point where Macduff finds out, Malcolm was trying to tell him all how much of a tyrant he's going to be if Macduff fights for him, and Macduff's like, oh no, Scotland's going to be up so terrible because we're going to replace one tyrant with another, and then Malcolm's all, psych, I love Scotland, I would never do that. And with the guarantee that a tyrant will not replace another tyrant, they head toward Dunsinane, where Macbeth is now living and holding up. They decide to camouflage their numbers by taking the tree branches down from Burnham Wood, and using them as disguises. Macbeth learns that Lady Macbeth has killed herself and then learns of how the trees of the forest seem to be moving toward him. He is still confident of his victory, for he interpreted the witch's prophecies as being favorable, for, favorable to him. After all, beware Macduff confirmed his suspicions. No woman born of man suggested his invincibility, and till Burnham Wood comes to the Dunsinane Hill, well, that was just impossible. Macduff and Malcolm's army attacks. The castle is overwhelmed, and the final battle between Macduff and Macbeth, who is incredibly overconfident and bragging about how no woman born of man can harm him, you know, after Mac and, and of course, um, you know, that's what he says on the battlefield with Macduff, and then after Macduff tells him that he was from his mother's womb untimely ripped, that's it. But instead of surrendering and accepting his fate, Macbeth decides to fight to the bitter end. The play ends with Macduff walking on stage holding Macbeth's severed head and Malcolm telling the crowd that order has been restored as both Macbeth and his wife are now deceased. He then says that he will be a benevolent ruler and all had to scone or scoon to see him crowned. And that is the plot summary of the tragedy of William, of William Shakespeare's the tragedy Macbeth. First question before we always we always ask before we get into our discussion is, did you like the play? And before I answer that, let me just apologize. I didn't laugh at your Ross joke because I was muted and it would have taken some physical effort to get there in time it's to okay. laugh at it. Okay. I just, but I, I couldn't even I couldn't even grief, spit it sir. out. I was like because it wasn't <laughs> even in the script, but I was just like I felt it building, and I was like I am not going to get through sure. this. Saying, we were on a break. And it's funny that you chose that one. Like you could have done pivot. You could have. I, done, it was but the first you went, one well, that I came guess... to mind because pivot would have been better. Pivot. Yeah. 
But anyways, uh, yes, I I mean, I spoiled it before. I think I've done this a couple episodes in a row now that, yes, indeed, I do. I even I would say I love this particular play. Yeah, it's it's easily one of and maybe it's because I've read it so many times or taught it so many times. It's easily one of my top five. Mm. So mm-hmm. I really, yep. really enjoy it. And it is a, with the exception of like two scenes. The, the scene with Hecate where they're where she's basically reprimanding them. Mm. And then that scene with Malcolm and Macduff where they're where <laughs> they're um they're talking back and forth yeah. like with the exception of those two scenes, the play moves along at a really nice clip. There's not a lot of fat to trim. Uh from Yeah. So. And I feel like I, I don't I don't think I've read this since I was a senior in high school. And so I, even though there were certain sections that I did have to reread a couple of times just to understand, which I think is true of all Shakespeare, just like you need to take it slowly. I felt like I better understood it than I did when I was in high school, which is always this nice. This lends itself really well to film. Um, we were kind of going back and forth. Uh, yes, we were. Yep. The, the battle at the end on the stage you know, you only have so many actors, so you have to kind of imagine what's a pretty big battle. Um, mm. You know, and, and and a sword fight between Macduff and Macbeth could be staged really, really well. But when you get to, like, the point where you have a Hollywood production or even just a film production and you have the capability of staging the actual battle, it really makes for a great um, ending to the play. Like the like the one in the, in the Fassbender version is really really good and the other thing i love about that movie is the witches because they 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 managed to make the witches creepy by taking away all their cackling and they just <laughs> deliver their lines very very straightforward and and, and monotonous and and, mm. and they have a fourth one with them who's a little girl who says nothing so that's just like automatically creepy it's it's really really yeah well done. Um, so let's let's get into the actual discussion. Um, this is classified as a tragedy, and it does certainly <gasps> end with the main character dead. You know, Shakespeare's tragedies end. What is it, the tragedies all end in funerals? The weddings all end in comedies, so to speak. Uh, the, the comedies all end in weddings. Jeez, if I could get my I, I've been on Zoom calls like for the last um. week and a half, right? Um, but what is the tragedy here? You know, is Macbeth a tragic hero if he isn't? Is there a tragic hero? Who is the actual hero of the play? You know, because this is about a tyrant. Sure. Um, you know, so what What do you think? I feel like... I don't know that I necessarily could call Macbeth the hero if only because I don't know too much of his backstory leading up to this if you're just looking at mm-hmm. the play. But even when you look at his interactions with his wife at the very beginning because he's hesitant about the whole thing and then after the deed is done and there are people talking about him like hey he used to be a pretty good guy it seems like he was a decent human being before all of this started happening and so I feel like it is tragic in the sense of you had this somewhat upright gentleman and then ambition 
got in there in his head and greed for power. And it, it was ultimately his downfall. And unfortunately, with his downfall came the death of several, several innocent people. I forgot there is so yeah. much. The body count is rather yeah, there's high. A real, there's a lot. I of, forgot yeah, about there it. There's a lot of violence. Absolutely. A lot of death. I mean, I felt, you know, Banquo. Oh, poor guy. I mean, I that was really sad. And then you've got uh, McDuff's family getting slaughtered. So it's, yeah, it, I would say that it is a tragedy in that sense. And I'm on the fence using the hero moniker. Mm-hmm. But I feel like he was a decent guy, getting a sense from other characters and how he is presented through their mouths. And so you just see, like, where he was and then where he ended up. Yeah, I agree with you. I I don't use this. In fact, Macbeth is one of those literary characters that I use as an example of what is a hero versus what is the protagonist of the story. Um, Because... uh, much like Victor Frankenstein, you, you're not. You, sometimes you are actively rooting against him, or you at least ex- mm-hmm. you expect his death, and that death is earned in that, like this is the fate that he has now caused upon himself. Um, so yeah, I, he's not a hero in the sense of a admirable person. If anything, you're right. He's a cautionary tale about what ambition, what ambition does to you. Um, yeah, it's a very stark example. He does become a villain to Scotland and to the and to, <sighs> you know, to people like Macduff and Malcolm and stuff. He he becomes a villain to the noble cause of of that country because he has seized yeah. the country for his own personal gain, you know, and he puts his own personal gain above the interest of his countrymen. Mm. Which is like you know they they you're right they talk about we we learn about him. And his character and his house character changed through what other people say about him, which is a piece of indirect characterization. And one of the one of the things is, oh, you know, he used to be an honorable guy, but then later on they talk about like all the weird stuff that's going on, and then they talk about like several like as we get closer to the end of the play, like how bad things have become because he's a tyrant. Yeah. So. Yeah. I just when you said the word honorable like that, I had a flash. I was like, where have I heard that before? Oh, wait, Caesar. Julius Caesar. So that's yeah. kind of funny. But we know that Brutus is an yeah. honorable man. Well, I mean, let's, so let's yeah. get down to that question um, a little bit, because you have this and Caesar are a little bit similar in the fact that it is a assassination is carried out by people who are involved in a conspiracy and in Caesar, there's more than two people in the conspiracy, but there are two primary co-conspirators in Brutus and Cassius. Mm. Here we have Macbeth and his wife. Um, you know, Macbeth, Macbeth's got the idea in his head. You know, he's like, hmm, you know, I can be king. You know, it's it probably crosses <laughs> his mind. She knows it, and she thinks he doesn't have the he doesn't have the cojones to pull this off, but I, I can push him in the <laughs> right direction by saying he's got no cojones. Yeah. And, um, and, and so is this a more intriguing conspiracy than the one in Julius Caesar? Mm-hmm. Um, or, or is it different? And are, how are we invested in this compared to that play, especially since Brutus's intentions are supposedly noble? It's all about yeah. preserving the Republic. I'm not going to speak for Cassius in that regard, but Brutus... All the way up until the end is 
is a he is a tragic hero. We we are we feel sympathy for him because he is he is trying to do something he thinks is he thinks he's doing this for the right reasons. Macbeth, on the other hand, isn't. So you know he's straight up duplicitous. So how you know how are we invested differently in in the, between this and Caesar? Yeah, it's interesting. That's a great question. I it, it's also interesting just because they both sort of spiral out of mm-hmm. control. Oh, how are yeah. Hmm. You know, I feel like well, yeah, bias-wise, I think I'm just so invested in the Caesar plot just because I mean that's just where my my leanings are. And so with Macbeth, it's my investment is while this is really new and different and strange for me and so let's let's see how this turns out i like the macbeth plot because it seems so driven by lady macbeth and with Many of Shakespeare's tales, um, the, the lots of fe- the female characters get on my nerves, mm-hmm. uh, and there are a few I think that can stand up on their own and be like legitimate characters. And this is one of the reasons why I really love Macbeth because I think Lady Macbeth is such a great character on our own. Mm-hmm. With the exception, I do. Even now reading it, I wonder about her descent into madness. I don't know if that's one of our questions there. But, I, yeah, I love that she is the one to, to propel. And it's hideous the way that she gets him to do it, too. I mean, that monologue, how she talks about, I love babies. But if I were forced to, I would dash out the yeah. brains of a of a baby. And you're like, wow, this woman, she's going to go for it. If you're not going to, Macbeth, you better take it. You better, you know, have your manhood and actually do it. So I'm invested in that way to see this strong but also villainous female character push her husband to do this and to be behind the scenes like that. Whereas, you know, there are all these these men in these political plots and everything. And it is interesting to see the the downfall of a potentially decent human being and then you see unfortunately what happened to Brutus and that it, it spirals out of control and it is he was trying to do something for the benefit of the republic but it wasn't the the best way to go about it so his motivations were pure but perhaps the action was bad whereas with Macbeth it's bad and bad bad motivations and then bad action so I don't know if that exactly answers your question but I think just the way I look at it is is from a you know what am I looking for a story kind of point of view and just with that latin roman history you know i've got that sort of thing that's engaging and then looking for strong feminine characters or strong female characters especially in a world where that really wouldn't happen very often especially in shakespeare's time and and to see her behind the scenes and very much like propelling things forward and taking control when he's going crazy at the dinner party, which is a complete role reversal because you almost expect the woman to be really crazy and the man be like, well, don't pay her any mind. She's just a woman. She's going crazy. So it's really interesting moments like that. Uh, Does that answer the question? I don't know. That that does, because just to add to that, her madness is expressed unconscious, subconsciously or unconsciously because she, 
um, the last time we see her, she's sleepwalking. So she is, she, the guilt can, she's been doing, we can assume that she's been doing a fairly good job of keeping the guilt hidden during the day but yeah, the, yeah. but the guilt he's giving us a lesson it, it always finds a way its way out you can never mm-hmm. completely hide the your sins i guess so to speak um and so she's doing it by with the you know by hallucinating the blood and, and everything um and then she does kill her so she's one of she's one of many in a long line of women in literature who off themselves by the end of the yep. work of literature and it's not yeah. even a 19th century Russian novel. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, I think, I think it's, and I think we are invested to see whether, like how he will have his downfall because we see mm. what it does to him. She propels him along up to a certain extent, but then he, he does, he murders Banquo without letting her, she doesn't know mm. he's done that. You know, so mm-hmm. that it's just that's one of those things where, where, um, and and this was the the question. I'm, so I'm going to answer my own question here. There's a question here. Does the Duncan's murder seal Macbeth's fate? If not, what? And I would answer that question. It's the murder of Banquo that seals his mm. fate because he does it independently of his wife, and he does it hiring shifty assassins, and from there <laughs> it just becomes. Like it, things become worse and worse. Then, then he, then he kills Macduff's. He doubles down by killing Macduff's family again. Something that his wife is not aware of before mm-hmm. he has it done. Because he's basically, don't worry about it, my dear, my, 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 my dear Chuck or whatever. I know he calls her a Chuck at one yeah. point. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah. So I think my 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 opinion on it is um, that yeah. So there, there's a point where perhaps after the murder of Duncan, there. That maybe there's a shot at redemption after that, but once he has Banquo killed, it's like no, this we need to, we want to see how this guy gets his in the end. Do you feel like if he had shared that with his wife, she would have urged caution in that, and then maybe he people would have continued to think or cast suspicions on other characters, and he would have been safer yeah. than trying to get rid of yes, all these and people. I think we would have seen a conversation back and forth between them where it's a lot more calculating because he is way more mm. brutal. And I think the brutality is what basically tips him over into pure villainy. Um, mm. Whereas we would have been really more intrigued if it was this, this plotting of these two people and, and Ooh, like, you know, there, there's, there's, there's something very <laughs> titillating about that, especially, and it's, yeah. and the scene, I mean, granted in, um, in the fastbender movie, like you mentioned, it's it is it is almost like outwardly sexually charged. But in the scene where she's enticing him to kill, it there is something very flirtatious about all of it, and it's very yeah. it, it is very sexually it's very very. There's a lot of, of just kind of that charge in the air, um, but like here, this is just it, it's just pure brutality, and that's not what we were invested. That's not what we were intrigued by. You know, we were intrigued by what was going on there, and you know, there's a, sure. Shakespeare doesn't want us to like this man by the end of the play. He wants us to see this guy <laughs> dead. Yeah, so. for sure. But let's talk about so let's talk about the witches, um, the supernatural, etc. Um, because we start with the witches start right away. You know, um, it's and, mm. and it's some of the most famous witches in in 
literature and fill you know what and in pop culture because it is three witches around a cauldron at one point in the play adding stuff like eye of newt you know this classic witch ingredients and we get double double boil and bubble cauldron blah 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 blah, which oh my gosh the cackling almost almost like the only other witch that i can think of that is more famous or has added more to the popular culture at least our modern popular culture than the three witches from macbeth would be margaret hamilton as the wicked witch of the west and the wizard of oz which is still a cackling Mm. witch now i was saying earlier that in the fassbender film they they tip it on its head and they have them just be very they deliver the lines but it's these they're very kind of flat in their delivery and it's a very creepy atmospheric thing which i think was necessary because by now the uh, these are supposed to be scary characters but we have been there there have been so many parodies of that and the i'll get you my pretty and your little dog too type of thing that it's almost comical so i don't think it works Mm. um but you know that was this was four hundred. This is a four hundred year old play. <laughs> so um, yeah, what's their motivation though? Like why why mm. even mess with this guy? If the prophecy is going to come true anyway, why not just have it happen the way it's supposed to? Do? Why tell him so that you can jumpstart things? You know, I mean, this is. I felt so much Roman and Greek kind of stuff coming out of mm-hmm. here as well. And they even mentioned some things with the fates and, you know, going back to Aeneas as well, you know, how much do you tell someone free will versus all of that? And so it is interesting because you wonder if they had not mentioned anything, would would it have put him on the track yeah. of of doing this kind of this this stuff because it gets his mind working like oh mm-hmm. what does that mean and the cador oh once that was true i guess i yeah. really will become king well this how does that happen his wife about the witches it's not, it's not a secret yeah and i think their their role to a certain extent i, I think is chaos and i'm sure if i think about it th- there's probably some order that that is juxtaposed against this in, in this play, I'd have to think about it. But I feel like they bring chaos. I think that they just want a fun time, which is why they get in trouble by their their goddess that they serve. And so in telling him, yes, the prophecy is there. And I think, give, let's just say that it is like the fates that they're definitely it's definitely going to happen but i think free will is Mm -hmm. still involved so their fun comes from how is he going to become king because i think the cador was already pretty cemented but they i he took the kingship pretty actively whereas there could have been so many different avenues for him to actually get that sovereignty which which i think is interesting like duncan could have died naturally though you know with the kids i I don't know how that or the young adults i don't know how that would have necessarily worked but i think they honestly i feel like they're agents Mm -hmm. of chaos and they're trying to I guess pun intended, stir the pot and and see what happens. But yes, yeah, certainly it adds 
some I like them just because I like that sort of mystical supernatural element. Again, going back just the Roman times and thinking of gods and, and influences on, and things like that. And so I like having them there. And yeah, it just it it makes it even more creepy because we're used yeah. to ghosts oh, yeah. in Shakespeare. That is not a new thing, but this I think adds a new level. And then having these prophecies makes it all murky. Like, oh, what does that mean? Oh, yeah, and he takes everything so literally, and I think that gets him into trouble as well. So I'll say they're pot stirrers, they're agents of chaos, and they want to throw it out there, but it's really him who takes it and runs with it in a particular way that there could have been different i feel like there could have been different avenues for that prophecy yeah, to come well, true and, and he um so the the first set of so there's essentially two big sets of predictions uh, the first one is almost like it, it's great manipulation because they they thane of quarter has already been decided he just didn't know it yet because um you know ross hadn't arrived or whoever hadn't arrived with um with the news you know like right after they leave the, he shows up and says, you're Thane of Cordor. You know, so, like, they already knew this was happening. So <clears throat> the Thane of Glamis is the first thing they tell about him, which is what he already is. So they identify who he is, so they know who he is. And he doesn't know who they, they are, but, like, oh, they know who I am. They call him Thane of Cordor, and then they say he's going to be king. And they know <gasps> they know he's already given the title. He just doesn't know yet. <laughs> so it's great manipulation. Yeah. They give him something that they know is going to come true. You know, it's they it's a, it's a mm -hmm. they set him up, and and they put the yeah. But you're right. There's a little there's free will in here. He's he's being manipulated, but he's always do he's yeah. doing this of his own accord. Now the second thing is they're playing into his ego and his narcissism at this point as a tyrant. Mm. They're, they're basically, they're giving him vague prophecy because in the fir the first prophecies, the three in the beginning are very direct, right? You know, there's nothing there's nothing yeah. figurative about them. It's Title, title, title. These are vague. They're they're and so they're they're like they're like a um. It's not there anymore. But for years up north, about a few miles north of where my house is on Twenty Nine North, as you head out of Charlottesville, there was a psychic readings place. We used to, oh, we used to joke that it was a house of a repute. I think they still have a sign uh, up. I, don't I'd they? have to check. I haven't been up there in a while. But yeah, I think yeah, I know what you're talking about. Building. Anyway, so um, so but it's they're almost like dime store psychic types, you know, Whoopi Goldberg and Ghost or whatever charlatans in that regard, you know, <laughs> give you give you. I'm thinking of <sighs> pink, the color pink. Yes, she really liked pink. Ooh. Uh huh. You know, you know, it's something like that, and so that's what they're basically doing to him. They're they're twisting these words in a way that they know he'll hear what he wants to hear. So they're manipulating him some more. It's really brilliant um, by telling him, A, you know, always set him up with the thing he already knows, right? And the second one is just, it, 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 in his, they're telling him what's going to happen. Macbeth, Macduff from his mother's womb was untimely ripped. In other words, you know, C-section. And uh, But the, the whole thing, the fantastical nature of it, the invincibility, he's like, they're not going to get me. I'm going to be king, you know, so, yeah. Um, but there's a lot of other supernatural stuff. And so here's what I'm going to posit, and it might be true, it might not be, but I'm thinking this. So I mentioned in the play, in the synopsis and in the history, that there was a lot of kind of... Um, there's a little bit of butt-kissing of James I going on in this play. There is a point where they talk about the King of England being wonderful. And it's not meant to be the king that there was 
uh, that was king during that play. It's meant to be a reference to James I. Mm. Hecate is a pagan goddess, right? The witches are pagans. They mm. are not of Christianity. At this point, it was the Church of England because this is post Henry VIII. They are not. They are non Christians, yeah. right? They're agents of chaos. The the whole natural state of things is unbalanced. They talk about like a mouse killing a hawk and it's night when it should be day and dogs and cats living together, you know, and everything has been turned on its head. And along comes Malcolm and the sons of Banquo to restore order, what is good and right, because this is the time of absolute divine right monarchy. So who's going to come in and set things right? Bank, um, Malcolm and Macduff, and then eventually Banquo's heirs, who were all going to add up to eventually lead to James the First. So it's like it's oh. in a way it's subtle propaganda. It's a it's a reinforcement of the the divine right and the divine right the divine and the divine right of course being the Christian God order hmm. from, the, from the chaos the order of the the God given King. I don't know if that's true, but I'm like it kind of makes sense if he's if he's trying to kiss. It sure does, kiss yeah. Little, you know, kiss a little butt there, so. Which actually it it, it may it not only makes sense, but it also it kind of it tracks too. It's just kind of like yeah, okay, I can see how that would be. You know, when we talk about order and chaos and and stuff like that. I, I don't even know if this is a question. I just loved because we're talking about how they're duplicitous. And I just the language mm-hmm. in this play is another one that that gets me. There's phrases like there's daggers in men's smiles, like the duplicitous nature of the phrasing that he uses sometimes. Good face but lying heart. I just I just wanted to point that out. Are there any is there any um, any phrasing or or we'll talk a little bit about soliloquies and asides too, um, jumping down a little bit. There are quite a few of them, and there are quite a very, very famous ones in this play. Uh, is there a, da- a dagger I see before me? Lady Macbeth's one after she reads the letter and she says, unsex me now, blah, 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 you know. Mm-hmm. Um, out, out, damn spot, of course, and tomorrow and tomorrow, tomorrow. Do you have a favorite speech, uh, lines, monologues, soliloquy? Like, what what are some of your favorite just pieces of writing in this in this play? I so yeah I think the Lady Macbeth is pretty classic. Um, I do like Hecate coming through and <laughs> and uh, being upset with the the people that should be listening to her, not going off on their own and and doing their own stuff without her blessing. Um, I mean the the witches' stuff though is so. Oh, man. I, I feel like it's intriguing. I mean, and it has to be because you're starting the play that way. You don't have a chorus. You don't have anyone, you know, a uh, uh, jovial narrator or anything. And the fact that they're using – I'm trying to think of what the word would be called, or but fair is foul and oh, foul yeah. is fair. Um what that literary um, rhetorical device would be. And yeah, how clever Shakespeare is with these prophecies, I I think is great because they're always, you you can never take them 
as they are, you always have to take it with a grain of salt. I mean, I'm thinking of, of sorry, there are going to be so many like Aeneas and all of that stuff references. I've already done it multiple times, but I just remember one of the prophecies that you won't land at Italy where you need to go until you're eating your tables. And they're like, what does that even mean? Because literally it sounds ridiculous. But to have the woods come up who could not be born of a woman, you know, that sort of thing. And you're like scratching your head. And then when it actually happens and how it happens, it's just so it's great. And their, their spell at whatever act that is, um, it's so it's creepy. I mean, I was reading it in broad daylight at work, but it, yeah, like blaspheming Jew. I was like, yeah, this is yeah. really bad. It's so scary. And, and how it all works together. Classic witch stuff, but just it's not honky mm. at all. It's it just really brings us as bad. So I really like what they do. And, and yeah, with um with the oh, I lost it with um with Lady Macbeth. I, I think the, those are some classic ones. I for sure. love yeah. his line where he's very quickly after the play where he is going mad and he is more expressive of it and he starts yelling about how he hears voices in the night glams have murdered mm. Cawdor have murdered sleep and sleep being this this vehicle through which we see the truth you know that his the, the guilt of things is keeping him up and she's trying to calm him down and yet it's the it's her walking in her sleep that reveals things to us from about, you know, that is revealing things to the world that she knows. You know, I just, I like, I like how that kind of comes to pass and comes back around. Um, I, I like how I like the atmosphere creepiness of her little monologue when she is, um, sleepwalking where she's like the Thane of Fife had a wife, you know, and, and it's this, it is very creepy in places as well, and and where she where she is trying to wash the blood over her hands, she's like out out there on spot, and 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 it's mm-hmm. um and we get it also through the eyes of a couple of servants in the house, like a doctor and and, and a servant, and they're like she's they're like you know she does this like every night, and I can't understand like what it is, and um and and so they're cut they're not entirely in on like what exactly is going on there, but they know that she's not well. Um, and I like her monologues as well. We'll get to the, you want to get to that a little bit, but the, the, one of the things that I like, I like his, is this dagger I see before me, before he goes into the murder. It's because you could, because you could think it's like, maybe there is an apparition there. So it is a little bit supernatural, but he also has the dagger. So, you know, he's going to murder the king. So it's, it, you know, there's that. Um, yeah. And there, there's that creepiness about this play, a dark castle. That you know, um, I also love the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow soliloquy, because you know, um, he hears a woman cry, and he says, "What is that noise?" And Satan, or Satan, not Satan, Satan, his servant <gasps> says, "It's the cry of woman, my good lord." And he says, "I have almost forgotten the taste of fears. The time has been my senses would have cooled to hear a night shriek, and my fell of hair would." At a dismal treaty's rouse and stir as life, as life weren't. I have supped full with horrors, direness familiar to my slaughterous thoughts cannot once start me. Meaning, like I'm so far gone, this doesn't bother me. And and then mm. he says, wherefore was that cry? And and Seaton says, the queen, my lord, is dead. And he says, she should have died hereafter. 
There would have been a time for such a word. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. It's it's almost an acceptance of his of his fate, you know, like that that like I mean, or, or it's a foreshadowing of it, like we know he's going to die, but it's 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 beautiful in the way it's written, you know, out out brief candles, a phrase, you know, that this is this that has become used over and over in there, and, and I just love that um, life's but a walking shadow, you know, that struts his frets, and then is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. There's there's this emptiness in him, and I think it's so poetically written. Of, of just this emptiness that he feels after all that he had and all that he sacrificed and destroyed to get it, it he is left with not he he is empty and I just I love that I love that about that um, particular particular soliloquy. Does it disappoint you that that Lady Macbeth kills herself off stage? Yeah, in a bit it does. I don't know how. I don't know if it would have added anything to the play that they put her on but it was it would have been it would have been interesting to see i felt that like you know that's an instance of maybe you need to show and not tell you know and perhaps Mm -hmm. it was edited out like you said we only know so much about the surviving text here so you know for maybe there was a scene there and they and it, it got lost in the in the workshopping or whatever or maybe it wasn't but yeah that would have been an interesting interesting scene to see did she because we just know she's dead. Did she stab herself? Did she jump out a window? We don't yeah. know. And did she do it consciously? Or did she do it in her sleep? You know, like, did mm. she sleepwalk to her death? You know, that that's... And yeah, so there's, there's some things up in the air there that you can kind of fill in the blanks. I don't want to say it's fun to do so because it's, you know, you don't want to say it's fun to think, speculate on the death of a, of a woman character. But it is intriguing, let's say. You know, like... What do you think she did? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I just feel like the character deserved more because mm-hmm. of how out in the open and pushing everything forward she was. So to be all of a sudden behind the scenes and that's when the death happens. I wish that um, if I have some just a little bit of criticism, I wish that she would have appeared one more time between the banquet scene and the sleepwalking scene. It it seems like there's quite a bit of the plot. Like like she just kind of disappears for a while, and then she reappears, you know. Because um, granted, in that time we get the witches appearing again, and we get Beware of Macduff, and we get the murder of Macduff's family. And there are those two scenes where I said they probably could trim a little bit of that, where you know Hecate comes down and talks to the witches and 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 berates them and then Malcolm and McDuff's conversation goes on for way too long um, in fact a lot of movie mm-hmm. versions either cut that on entirely or they um, they truncate it because there's some good mm-hmm. stuff in there um, there's there's the where McDuff um, McDuff is upset obviously <laughs> you know that is that his family has been murdered and Malcolm's like you know fight it like a man and he says i need to feel it like a man too and you know like that, that's a great set of lines you know so i wouldn't and i wouldn't erase that because if you're going to kill mcduff's family you need to get mcduff like we need to get that scene but the whole back and forth about whether or not malcolm is fit to be king of england like we get it it's for scotland yeah. sorry not england but you know we get we get we get it, we get it. 
Um, I want to get to Lady Macbeth a little bit more. Um, okay. But I want to, and I think we've covered, but I want to cover two things before I get to, uh, we get to it. Um, let's talk a little bit about the violence because <laughs> it's violent, but in more ways than one blood is a huge symbol you know, and I think we can we can talk about where we see it and why we're seeing it. But also, is there a different is there a difference between dishonorable and honorable violence in this play, or what is the difference between dishonorable and honorable violence? Uh, well, I guess we we sort of talked about it with Julius mm-hmm. Caesar, I suppose. If if you think that that stabbing little guy couple times <laughs> is honorable violence is there anything here well ooh, i guess it, it goes to justice uh-huh. you know is there is there i guess i just changed the word from honorable to justice, but i'm just thinking like why are you killing what is it in the name for in the name of and so any of macbeth's Killings, with the exception of the battle that they were in, I would say would probably be dishonorable and unjust. And I think the killing of Macbeth at the end is justified and honorable. So I guess that would be, I guess that's the the simple answer to your question. It seems like in this play, any death that is associated with battle or war is an honorable one. In the sense that maybe Macbeth's death itself is not honorable because he goes down, you know, fighting or whatever, but there is an honorable to killing him. You know, the, it's 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 a just cause the battle they fight, and it's a just cause the battle at the very very beginning because there's only two battles in the entire play: one at the beginning, and one at the end. Everything in the, all the other violence is in the middle of the play. It's all assassinations and murders. And the, mm. the bookended battles are all of for the sanctity of Scotland because somebody has here comes your favorite word betrayed <gasps> because McDonald was a traitor and Macbeth was a traitor tyrant king McDonald was a traitor and they and and the power the the powers of order and the the right king the right people are coming to set things straight in each example so that that's your honorable violence but yeah you're right all of the murders in here because when brutus kills caesar he thinks he's doing it for an honorable reason right like his motive mm-hmm. his motivation in his mind is a good one even if we're like i don't know about mm-hmm. that but with here it's it's all treachery all the murders especially murdering children but yeah. it's, it's interesting to see. It's, it's just an interesting thing to explore um, with students in a, in, in a discussion because, A, we can talk about the morality of what they do, you know, or the justification of what they do. And, B, we are so desensitized to violence. Like, you know, we've seen, you know, we've seen honorable murder like in spy movies and things like that so like you know now we get to actually talk about like you know like yeah what is right about this and what is wrong about this and stuff so yeah it's for me it's a little more black and white than say here you go again folks the end of the aeneid when aeneas kills turnus because that was like oh 
you know, there's more, it's more up for debate of whether or not he should have done it. But for me, I feel like these killings are like, you oh, shouldn't yeah. have done it. And, oh, that's justified. So it's little, it's, this play isn't very no. gray for it's, me. It's funny how, how rich and layered some of the text in this play is as we were just talking about it. The play in itself is not subtle at all. You know, it's like this man kills somebody to become king. This is not what you do. He is evil. We need to take him down. It is a very there's a very black and white presentation of what you're supposed to believe here. But that doesn't mean you can't layer things, you know. So I, I, the two things I just want to briefly talk about, I think um, three. Let's get back to Lady Macbeth. Um, now, I've heard people say this is all her fault. Um, Interesting. I don't subscribe to that. I think that, you know, Macbeth, I think Macbeth would tell you, he, he, oh, she made me do it. <laughs> That's what yeah, Adam said, I, too. Well, I, and I wonder if he's pulling from that, too. I wouldn't be surprised if he was, right? <laughs> but is she, like, A, is there something, like, proto-feminist about her? And B, um, is there something also being said about masculinity? Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, oh boy. So there is a reference to Tarquin at one point, and I don't know when that happened. But this is a re- reference back to, and I'll probably get the the king number wrong, but one of the seven kings of Rome. It might have been five. The wife was the one to convince another another husband. Hey, let's kill our partners and then also kill. And then like, so they did the deed, they married, and then they were able to take over the the sovereignty and kingship. So like, it's it's a great reference for Shakespeare to use because it's very similar. Proto-feminist. Or or like a feminist character. Proto-feminist meaning because the... I think so. No, I I would, yeah. 1606. Yeah, no, yeah, I get you. Just, yeah, giving her more than it. Yeah, I mean... Basically, out of the norm, you know, having a, a, a female character out of that is not the standard of the time. Absolutely, I think. I think she is portrayed rather equally with Macbeth. Uh, their discussions that they have, well, she kind of is overbearing to a certain extent, but he doesn't, like, smack her, be like, woman, I'm king, listen to me, that kind of thing. Like, he listens to her. They have discourses on everything that's happening and happened and will happen. So I would say yes to the, to the feminism. And then is it all her fault? No. So the seeds were already sown. The witches were there. Let's say fates involved. He was already considering it or he wouldn't have written the letter, which she in fact actually states to him. She pushes him, but ultimately he's the one who did everything. So and, and as you said, he's the one who goes even beyond where he should have by killing other people and it gets way too out of control. So does she have a part to play? Absolutely. I'm not saying that she's guiltless, but it, it takes two to tango and, and they were tangling pretty hard. <laughs> so, yeah. Th- yeah, that's all. Were those the, the questions? Yeah. yeah. Did I answer I, all I, of them? I, okay. I don't really have much to add to it. I agree with you. Um, now, granted, there is a. People might, I would assume people also fall into the trap of like, oh, she's just another scheming woman type of thing. But I don't know. There's, there's a lot of strength in her that I, that I like. And I like, I like her, I like her self-awareness to a certain extent, you know, 
um, when she's goading him or when she's when she's kind of calling upon the you know the whole unsex me now speech is is a good example mm. of that. Um, and she's a character who has been done plenty of times afterward too. We see the Lady Macbeth's you know type of character in in, um, in in TV shows. The one that I always remember is is and it, she's a great character in the, in this season. It was one of the few seasons I watched of Twenty Four, but the very first one, Penny Johnson Gerald plays. Uh, uh, president um, Dennis Haysbert's character, uh, the president, his wife, and she's scheming behind the scenes, basically to help keep him in power because you know he gets shot and everything, and, and like you know she, it's a very Lady Macbeth type of thing, and, and Claire uh, Underwood is very Lady Macbeth in her way, and, and mm, it's just a character yeah. I like. But yeah, I'm right there with you. Uh, the Tarquin reference is in Act Two, Scene One, right at the end toward the uh in like the last three quarters or so of Macbeth's is this a dagger I see before me monologue mm. he says uh let's see um now or now or the one half world nature seems dead and wicked dreams abuse the curtained sleep witchcraft celebrates Per Hecate's offerings and withered murder alarmed by his sentinel the wolf whose howls his watch thus with his stealthy pace with Tarkin's ravishing, Tarquin's ravishing, Tarkin, with Tarquin's yeah, ravishing strides towards his design moves like a ghost. Thou art, thou sure and firm set earth, hear not my steps, which way they walk for fear thy very stones prate of my whereabout and take the present horror from the time which now suits with it. Whilst I threat he lives and then he goes to kill Duncan. And in fact, the bell rings, he says basically... Mm. Um, he basically says the, the bell told. He says the bell. Uh, Hear it not, Duncan, for it is a knell that summoned thee to heaven, thee to heaven or to hell. And I don't know if for whom the bell tolls is a reference to Macbeth or not. I, you know, I have to look at Hemingway. But, but yeah. So that, just to just to grab that reference for you. Let's lighten things up just a little bit before we. Uh, <laughs> so there is one oh, funny gosh. scene in this, and it's oh, the porter no. scene. Um, it uh-huh. is. In the beginning of Act Three, uh, it is after, right after the murder of Duncan. In fact, right around the time, right before they find the body, so to speak. And what's the joke being told? Why put it in there? Yes, yeah. So this is I am. My eyes are always attracted because to to this because I think it's the same as the grave digger too in Hamlet. The justification changes. With Shakespeare, and I think the meter, well, with the meter, and I think it's just prose. It's straight prose, as well as the letter, I think it's straight prose, too. One of the general rules, now, I don't know if this is universal for Shakespeare, but one of the general rules to think about with Shakespeare is that the lower the class of the character, the more likely they are to speak in prose, and the higher the class of the character, the more likely you are to get iambic pentameter. Mm Mm-hmm. So anyway, so just to say that 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 happened, uh, you know, I I think this is you always do this to me. So I might punt to you because honestly, all I can think is is a joke about alcohol and that kind of the the pause, the pros and the cons of alcohol, which goes which is a theme potentially of the killings anyways, because that's how they set everything up. But uh, yes, I'm going to punt it to you, as you always say to me. Oh gosh! Do you not like that? See, that's it what happens when you do it to me. Now you know. Dirty joke. Because oh, 
because so, alcohol. Whoa, whoa, because, whoa. So you asked the question, but you didn't because the answer. Alcohol lifts the libido up. Uh huh. But causes certain things to not be up. Oh no. The equivocator, yes, the equivocator. as he says. The, the equivocator is the reference to um, Guy Fox's co-conspirator because there was something about equivocation or something in the, in, in the charges about him. But but the fact that he yeah, but it's the great equivocator. It's like it gets you all riled up, but then you can't get it up. It's a it's a joke about uh, it's a joke about uh, what alcohol does to the male libido and the male. Yeah. I see. That's, I love it. I love it. It's and so... kids don't get it until you actually point it out. They're like, oh, oh, like, oh yeah. Don't no, go I, I tell them, go read Twelfth Night. <laughs> oh, interesting. Because, yeah. Well, do you? Yeah, sorry. Some men you go have ahead. Great, some have some are great. Some are born great, and some have great greatness thrust upon them. Is sometimes done in a way that is a lot more ribald than, you know, what what we think it is. Gotcha. Um, do you feel like this is misplaced? I mean, is he just trying to have some levity in an otherwise dark play? I I think so, but um, I I can call upon teaching experience because a couple of years ago, um, I had uh, yes, it was last school year, so 2018, 2019. Um, one of my colleagues had a student teacher. And this student teacher, this is how long I've been teaching. This student teacher was a former student of mine. So Kayla mm-hmm. came into the, she was like, can I watch your class? I said, yeah, why don't you sit in on my AP Lit class? So she sat on my AP Lit class and we were doing this very scene. And A, like what cracked me up is that she she was just kind of observing and, and would raise her hand when she was wanted to comment. I'm like, Kayla, you don't have to raise your hand. You're a student teacher now. You're not in my 10th grade English class. But, um, but she pointed out she actually went and saw this at the Globe in London when she was studying in London. And she said that it's actually pretty necessary because by then the tension is so great that the timing of this, and especially when it's delivered really, really well, cuts it right where it needs to be because then you ramp the tension back up. So it is a little bit of a breather. Yeah. Okay. So which 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 is something that I think is is really important. Like if you do watch things like all the way through – you start to get that feel, you know, or, or, or like novels are like that somewhere where, where they put kind of a um, kind of a comic or, or a lighter chapter after a heavy chapter because you can only maintain that energy for so long as an audience before you feel burned out by it and, and you need to save your energy for the end. So, yeah. Mm. And finally, what lessons can we learn from this play in our modern age as far as power and ambition is concerned? Oh, great, Scott. Is that the? This is the real reason why I think you wanted to. Um... I, I'm the one who tweeted last night. What did I let me let me find the tweet? Because this actually got liked, and I was like, oh, people liked it. Um, <gasps> I said, so is tonight the night he gets on stage and rants about how no woman born of man shall defeat him until Burnham one word comes to Dunsinane. Oh boy! Because just to peek behind the curtain, we're recording this during night two, I think, of the uh, of the Republican National Convention. So. Oh, okay. Yeah, what can we learn? Um, well, you know, honestly, that one speech hit me this time, which I, I didn't mention when you asked what mm. what sort of speech did you have. That I guess it was in the Malcolm 
and Macduff conversation that you said is a bit yeah, too yeah. long. And I would agree that it do- it does because it's just lots of talking, which I guess is what a play is. But, you know, you kind of want some sort of action to be happening and let's go against yeah. Macbeth. But there are a lot of things to pull from that in terms of virtues, mm-hmm. vices and, and good leadership and everything. But what really drew me to it is one of his initial things is that any any sovereign after Macbeth is going to be worse than Macbeth. Like there's no going, there's not, there's no getting better than Macbeth. You had Duncan and, and that's just fallen from that and no one's going to be better, which I understand he, he comes back around. He's like, I was just kidding. I was just joshing. But I, I feel like that is in a sense, I feel that right now to a certain degree, because we all, we look back in this time and no matter your political affiliations, I'm hoping that people will agree that we're not – the United States is is kind of messed up right now in, in multiple ways. So let's just put it that way. And I think people look back with this like – I don't – it's not nostalgia, but just like looking back and like, well, there were – it was better than this way back when, but I feel like we've actually been on a decline and things get worse and worse and worse. So it, it's almost disheartening to think like, yikes, here we are. And it might, it might, uh, it might get worse from here. And I, you know, I don't know. I guess I've just pulled the, um, the podcast down. I'm not sure. I, I don't want it to be that way, but I also think that it, Things are shocking, shocking right now. And and I think years ago I would never would have expected. And I feel like that's just something we need to unfortunately get used to is like we're going to be shocked until we all step up as an individual and as a nation to to make this better. Um, As for, yeah, I think the uh, the positive lesson would be we need and this is similar to. Julius Caesar as well. I mean, not a sad. I'm not. I'm not promoting assassination, but I am. We do need to be like the people who. It seems wrong at first when you're fleeing to England or France, even though I. Whatever happened to the son who went to France? He just hung he out there and Ireland didn't do anything. He's, he's. He is. I think. He doesn't show up at all after the one scene. Yeah, he's yeah. Kind of it's even, like, he okay. might be mentioned at the end where they're like, we're going to recall the people in exile. And other, other than that, that's it. Donaquil Don- or whatever his name is. Donalbane, yeah. But we need to be like those people who do search out help and do come together and rise up against tyranny or against the wrongs. And I feel like to a certain extent, we are seeing that we're seeing that with the black lives matter. I think we're seeing that with women's marches and, um, and queer marches and and getting the, the voice out. So I think we just need to do it more. And I also, even though I really like those individual movements, I really feel like, man, if we could all get unified somehow of just like love human, you know, that, oh man, we could be so strong. Um, and, and do not, please don't take this as an, you know, I'm saying, oh, lives matter, that kind of thing. Cause I, I, 
totally understand the point of each of these separate movements. Um, but I, I also think having a unified front and fighting the, the hatred that is happening is also something that we really need to, to get on board with. So uh, those would be my two lessons is this might not be the worst, folks. So strap in and also prepare yourselves. And then also just that we need to speak up when we see these bad things happen because if you're not then it's just going to keep happening the phrase unified front is probably the best way to describe it because you aren't saying all all lives matter or anything like that you are essentially saying that like you know that we at least at this point in time need to get behind something because and and getting back to the play um that that scene is really good like i said i think it just it it needs just a little bit of an edit but um but where he's like, oh, Scotland, oh, Scotland, like there's that sort of sense of duty and honor to your country because you feel that there are ideals inherent to the to your country that are worth mm. fighting for or worth preserving. And when someone has come to power through ill-gotten means, you know, through through treacherous means and is is tyrannical, you are seeing that attacked so as somebody who believes in the country and not the person and i think that's the thing that that mcduff and malcolm are essentially getting that point across that you believe in in the you 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 support the person because you believe in the cause in the country or the territory the nation or whatever it happens to be as opposed to that person and their their personal ambition because that's that you know that could be a quick way to betrayal of course it is very tempting to just throw your hands up in the air be like nothing none of this matters you know <laughs> you just like you know forget it because yeah. all you see is darkness ahead and, and it is it, it's a it's a fight it's a fight that that you and i think that we see it through this lens um shakespeare only gives us so much complexity of it because he has five acts to do it you know that it could be you know their entire academic texts written about things like we were just talking about in our brief mm, five to ten yep. minutes here but yeah i think it's so so when somebody comes out saying oh, why don't we take shakespeare i'm like this is a good mm. example. Like you can take the lens mm. of today and f- you can look at it with this. And in addition to the language and the layering and the characterization and all the things here, and we learn these lessons and we apply it to today. And I mean, granted, that's I'm, the, now I'm getting all like you know flowery English teacher about it, but that's why I love this play so much. It's just like it is. You know, much like some of the dystopian lit we've read and some of the other things we've read, you know, it might not deal directly exactly with what we're talking about here. But, A, this plot's been done time and time again since this play came out. You know, mm-hmm. so we need it's a good foundational text. And, B, it, it, it still teaches the same lessons about power, ambition, and, and, and what we need to do to, to watch out for it. So, yeah. so, let's wrap it up with our last question. And that is, is this a required reading? <laughs> oh my gosh! Um, thank you. I mean, you should have. Can you do it in a Scottish accent? I, is this required reading? Uh, that's that's a that might be Irish. <laughs> I, I'm I'm neither Scottish nor Irish. We'll my ancestors it. were from England, so. Okay, uh, I I think so. Yes. I would, I believe so. I think that as you were basically saying that Shakespeare is pretty relevant and I like, I know the kids hate Shakespeare, 
which I guess is because it's hard and they don't like hard yeah. things. And it is, it's still, it's still difficult for me, but I like those sorts of challenges and just slowing down and, and taking your time with the, the language. And, and even now, you know, having Roman history and, and Latin under my belt, I, I love those sorts of references. But I I absolutely think that Macbeth in particular is is worthwhile, especially where our nation is currently. And just to teach, yeah, I, I think uh, virtues and, and leadership and, and downfall and look at how out of control and the importance of CSI because of that. If we had CSI back then, it would have been wrapped up real yeah. easy because they would have, you know, those two poor kids that got killed on their guard duty. We would have seen all that. But, uh, yeah, the, so yes, yes is the simple answer. All right. So we do have some feedback, uh, both our Facebook comment. You didn't answer. Oh, I, oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. Or did you just combine? I, I, I thought okay. that, like, you know, I was I was just agreeing with you because I thought I had one. essentially said it already. But yes, definitely, definitely. Oh, uh, yeah, I I'm guess. Gonna, you know, there are a few there are a few hills I die on as far as curriculum is concerned. Any book I think oh. can be swapped out for any other one. But this is one of those ones in AP Lit where I'm going to be like, this is one of the last ones I'm going to let go if I, if I have to change things around because I really love this and I really think everybody should read it because I think it's a it's yeah. a great it is a great starter to you know because mm. it's a very it's one of the easier tragedies to read too you know so you're not bogged down on a lot in this play and then and then you know so it, I think it and the students I've I've had do tend to like the play or even if they don't necessarily like the subject matter or something they appreciate it for what it is so Interesting. Would you say an eighth grader would be okay reading this? Um, I don't know. I mean, they might, they, they, uh... I ask because the curriculum at my old school changed and they had it I for think, eighth grade. And I was like, I, ah, could, I don't I know about that. I think you that. could get it. I think it's a, it, you know, it, it has its a fair amount of metaphor and everything like that. I think you'd have to scaffold quite a bit. Um, but the plot is very straightforward, so... You know, it's it's not as uh, it's not as hard to understand. But yeah, I think you could give it a shot. So, all right. Anyway, feedback. Uh, we have two Facebook <laughs> comments from our Scholastic Book buddy Robert Ward, and Stella is going to start us off Ooh. with the comment he has about episode forty-four, which was Prodigal Summer. <gasps> the romance mm. novel. Okay, Prodigal. <laughs> Prodigal Summer is a perfect example of a book that I would have never covered in school and thankful to have chosen here and thankful to have it chosen here and read it. Tom, thank you. This wasn't my favorite book you've chosen, but a great opportunity to discover. My biz my biggest complaint, however, is that I thought it was too preachy. I'm a big softie for animals and against hunting, but felt that Barbara Kingsolver focuses on these types of people and focusing on their beliefs could be a little much. As for the book, I sharply dis oh, oh. I sharply disagree with Stella and I don't <laughs> You paid him, didn't no. you? I sharply disagree with Stella, and I don't think this has... Oh, are you kidding me? It doesn't have elements of a romance novel. This is pure... Th <laughs> okay. This, this is pure thirst. 
Yeah, I'll be okay. I'll be okay. And then in all caps, he says, this book is thirsty. Oh, my gosh. For most of the novel, I legitimately thought Eddie was a fragment of Diana's imagination, and she was... (laughs) Did you make me read this on purpose? (sighs) Okay, and she was just horny as hell. And then we had little Ricky, so clearly not. I do agree with Stella regarding Garnett as being a Sundere, though. I found his chapters insufferable. He was painted so well as that obnoxious MAGA-loving old man. I really had to grit my teeth to get through. Despite being so old, however, I imagined that he was attracted to Nanny on some level, but incapable of recognizing and Uh, working through it. You know, his his description of his, that obnoxious MAGA-loving old man, like... Garnett is a character that I could totally I like I, I've seen people around here like that you know just remember that like the, I always thought the characters in this book thought I thought the characters in the book seemed very real because you I mean I don't know about you I've taught people who were very much like in families like that so um, no mm. the only reason I had you read this instead was because I'd been doing <laughs> because I was oh, like, oh, sure, well, like sure. you know I, I led on the discussion so you can lead on the con. Thirsty, eh? So. Ay, ay, ay. All right. On Galapagos. I completely forgot about the short story Harrison Bergeron. That was definitely the first story by Vonnegut that I was exposed to when I was in high school. Um, And I'll break from this to say it's probably many people's first exposure to Vonnegut. It is a popular text in like ninth grade and things. I'm going to have to tease, though, and say, unlike you two, I did not know about... I did know about Trout, although I haven't been read too much Vonnegut. I mentioned my love for Ted Sturgeon a few times to the show, been being a fan. I knew about the recurring character, a concept I love, although I didn't know he had a son in the books. Also, I don't know if you two knew about it, but soon there is a book coming out soon called Hemingway in Comics. I've, I've read reviews yet, but, I have, but I'm kind of curious about it. My knowledge doesn't expand much past what was mentioned in this episode. Once in high school, when the teacher asked what we knew about him, I jokingly brought up his suicide due to his fear of waning mental abilities. Um, I think I responded a little bit of a thread uh, that I'd only, I've only read um, uh, The Old Man of the Sea, which I don't particularly like, and uh, a couple of short stories. And I do teach one Hemingway short story. It's Hills Like White Elephants. Um, which is mm. very, very good. Um, and then a, a, a comment that he made um, that is not on here. He just he recommended Throne of Blood, and also talked about the Wells film. I mentioned that I have never seen the Wells film because he was curious as to what production that we're going to use that I was going to use in you know in, in post in terms of the clip at the beginning of stuff. And he said it would probably be the Wells one. I'm like, actually, I haven't seen that one. So, um, but I again, I can't. I and you were the same way. I don't think either of us can say enough. Of, think good things about throne of blood and say like go stream that movie and and watch it it's it's such a great uh, interpretation of Macbeth. so anything anything else before i uh, get on to the to the end here no i mean just that um i read more hemingway than i would have liked and i was compelled to because of the reading list there, yeah, and, there's one yeah. that's on my list um because of that poster I have with like all the scratch off books and stuff, and I can't remember which one it is. I want to say it's The Sun Also Rises, but I'm not sure. Or For Whom the Bell Tolls, but I'm not entirely sure. Um, mm. But yeah, so we, we are at the end of the episode here, and. I you can't believe it. 
Um, but uh, as we do with every episode, we have another book to pick. It's Stella's choice. So Stella, what are we reading for our next episode? Yeah, and just to amend something I said before, it was the Seventh mm. King. Uh, there are two Tarquins, and it was the the worst one. Uh, Tarquinius or Purpose. So there, I don't think it will be described as um, what is it? Tasty, thirsty, thirsty. But um, I think there is some eroticism in this book, and I'm choosing it because of a colleague of mine. He always talked about it, and empathy was going with it, and it's got some hard, it's got some difficult topics that we can work through. I'm a little bit nervous, but I think it'll be a good one, especially given the the current uh, times that we're going through. It is called The Reader by Bernard Schlink. All right. Well, until then, you can check mm-hmm, out mm-hmm, mm-hmm. our Facebook page, our Twitter feed, the blog, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, don't forget to leave us. Uh, we welcome any feedback, even if it's for an old episode or anything like that. Um, and as always, thanks for listening and take care. And after listening to this, be sure to spin around three times and swear and throw some table salts and all those things. <laughs> Good night. Good night. Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two troops. That's two troops. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash required reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode.